Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Have you ever missed an opportunity? I mean, have you ever missed your chance? Have you ever squandered your, your last chance at something? I have. I have. I, uh, I played uh, middle school football and loved it. Now, I was small, uh, but I was slow. And, uh, and even, though, even though both those things were true, it was a lot of fun. We had, a, we had a great time. And my sixth grade year, first year on that team, we had a great team. We had a great team. And we found ourselves in the semifinals of the league championship. And so on a Saturday evening, one Saturday evening in October, we were to travel the, uh, the 15 miles from Bremen, Georgia, down through the country to Bowden, our arch rivals, the Red Devils, and play them uh, in, the, uh, in the semifinals uh, with hopes of making it into the championship uh, game. And so my dad asked on that Saturday morning, he said, son, what... What time uh, do we need to be at the school? I said, 5.45, Daddy. I've got to be on the bus at 5.45. The bus is going to leave at 6. Coach Austin said, if you're, if you're not on the bus at 6, we have to leave and you'll miss the game. You'll miss, you'll miss the bus. And he said, are you sure? My dad said, are you sure? That sounds a little late to me. I said, no, no, no. I'm, this, I can't wait for this game. This is very important to me. Got it. I'm to be there getting on the bus at 5.45, leave, uh, leave at 6, and I wouldn't miss this for anything. So uh, we even beat that. We drove into the parking lot outside the field house at 5.30, and we were the first ones there. <laughs> I thought. 5.45 came, no one was there. 6 o'clock came, no one was there. 6.15 My dad said, son, I think we missed the bus. I think we missed the bus. The bus left at 5, and I missed it, and I missed it. So we drove the 15 miles, sat in the stands, and watched all my buddies play in that game. And uh, I missed my chance. I missed my chance. Have you ever missed your chance? Have you? Have you ever missed your, have you squandered your last opportunity at something? As I thought about these things, I was reminded of the first Palm Sunday and all of the events of that day. We, we today here in the Dogwood Church family uh, gather along with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ and all of our sister churches here and around the world these 24 hours celebrating what the Christian calendar knows as Palm Sunday, and we're all remembering the events uh, of that day, and we celebrate them and we remember them this day. There are several accounts in the scriptures of of that event, and we're going to focus on uh, the Gospel of Luke. So if you take your copy of the scriptures, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28 down through verse 44, we find Luke's account of what we know as the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now, again, on what week, you you won't find it called Palm Sunday in the Scriptures. We Christians named it that, and you'll see why in just uh, a few moments. But on what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem 
for the last week of his life on earth prior to his crucifixion. And he was a part of a great number of uh, Jewish pilgrims who were arriving in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover and then the seven days following the Passover called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the first of the three great worship festivals of the Hebrew people. Now, just a couple of miles outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples entered a small village known as Bethany. And there in Bethany, Jesus sent two of his disciples to secure the use of a donkey, a donkey that had never been ridden by anyone else uh, before. You can read the account there. And when, the, when that donkey had been collected, when that donkey had been secured, the disciples threw their robes across the back of that donkey, uh, creating kind of a saddle for the Lord Jesus. They placed him on the donkey, and then they proceeded down the mountain, down the Mount of Olives, uh, to enter the city of Jerusalem. Now look at me a moment. That was a big deal. Now, we, we Western Christians, over 2,000 years, this side of that event, said, well, he got on a donkey and he rode into town, and yeah, 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 and what? We missed the significance, but it was not lost. The significance was not lost on the people, uh, the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem on that day. Let me tell you why this was a, this was a big deal. Jesus was, by this action, blatantly, radically, intentionally, openly declaring himself to be no less than the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah sent by God. By making his entrance into the city on a donkey, uh, especially at the time when the most people would see it, uh, he was declaring himself Uh, He was declaring his identity as the Messiah. We know as God come in the flesh. You say, where do you get that? Well, approximately 480 years before, the prophet Zechariah, inspired by God the Holy Spirit in his writings, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, um, he foretold that this very act would be a sign of the Messiah an indicator of the Messiah. Uh, take a look at it on the screen. Zechariah 9, nine says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was declaring himself to be no less than the Messiah sent from God. Now at this point, His disciples, uh, not only the 12 disciples that we know best, the 12 that were closest to him, but all of the other people who had already decided that Jesus was the Messiah, who'd already decided to follow him, all of his followers in the crowd uh, could no longer contain themselves. For you see, they knew what Jesus was doing as well. And they had been wondering if he was ever going to do this. Uh, If you'll go back and read the account of the the life and the teachings of Jesus and his ministry in Matthew and uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, as well as throughout the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, you'll find from time to time some of his disciples coming to him saying, Lord, is now the time? Is now the time? Are you going to... They were wanting to push him. 
Are you, are you going to now? And even when he would perform some of his miracles, he would say to people like the very first one, when he performed the, the, wedding at the, uh, the uh, miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and um, he told his mama, who was urging him to do it, he said, this is, why, are you, why are you doing this? This is not my time. I'm not, I'm not going to go public yet. I'm not going to go. When are you going to do this? And all of a sudden, he, he said, now's the time. In the most dramatic way possible, I'm going to declare uh, myself. And they couldn't contain themselves. They had wondered. And so here was the time. I mean, listen to this in um, beginning in verse 36 of Luke 19. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Why? For, look at this. For all the miracles they had seen. Now underline that phrase in your Bible or highlight it if you've got a digital device there. For all the miracles they had seen. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, these were the people who believed in and rejoiced in the Lord Jesus. These were the people who had already decided to follow Jesus. These were the people who had received Jesus. These were the people who recognized Jesus for who he was. These were the people who had heard him teach and, as we see in the scriptures here, they had witnessed his miracle-working power. Already they were eyewitnesses. There, it, in that crowd, no doubt, were some of the people who had witnessed Jesus uh, restoring life to his friend Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead. And they'd never, the scripture says they'd never stopped talking about it. Uh, in this crowd were some of the people, no doubt, who had witnessed Jesus healing the blind man named Bartimaeus. Uh, it's highly likely that in this crowd were the four friends of the crippled man who had carried him on his mat uh, to see Jesus, and when they couldn't get in the house where Jesus was, they went up on the roof on the and and, and open tore open a hole in the roof and lowered him down with ropes and placed him in front of Jesus. And they had witnessed Jesus restore him to health and his ability to stand and walk, and even Jesus hear Jesus say that he had forgiven his sins. Uh, no doubt there were some of the people in this crowd who had been a part of that massive. Uh, group of 5,000 men plus women and children who had seen Jesus take the lunch of a little boy, just a few pieces of bread and just a couple of little fish, and began to break them and multiply them and fed the whole crowd. There were people there who had seen this happen uh, before, and uh, everything they did in this scene was an act of worship. It was an act of praise. Uh, It was an act of rejoicing. Now, Matthew in his gospel and Mark in his gospel say that some of them began to go to the palm trees and cut off branches and lay them down on the road as kind of a red carpet entrance for Jesus into the city, which is now why we call this Sunday Palm Sunday. That's where it comes from. Matthew and Mark tell us about that. And uh, they laid them before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, these people didn't rejoice over Jesus just because they decided they wanted to. They had evidence, eyewitnesses of his miracle working power and his, his teaching. They had evidence. Now, it's faith, faith based on evidence. Now, the Christian faith is a thinking faith. It does require faith. 
in Christ, but it is a faith based on reason. There is much evidence there. And I would encourage you, if you've been uh, skeptical and you have a lot of questions, um, keep seeking and looking at the evidence, for there is much evidence down through these 2,000 years since Jesus' uh, earthly presence, um, philosophical as evidence, historical evidence, uh, all kinds of evidence. Uh, check it out. Now, it does require faith. There's a step of faith, but it's faith based on reason. And these people had a darn good reason for believing in Jesus and, uh, and following him. But there was another group in the crowd that day who did not rejoice. Rather, they wanted to rebuke Jesus. And uh, verse 39 tells us about them. Look at it. Some of the Pharisees in, from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, they rebuked Jesus by telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Tell them to stop this. Now, so who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a, um, a, a religious group in first century Judaism, very serious about their faith. Most of the time, they were in direct opposition to Jesus and his teachings and his claims. Most of the time, uh, they were separatists. Now, what I mean by separatists is they, they determined that they would avoid contact with any individuals or groups that they considered to be impure or, or uh, unclean or out of bounds theologically. There's no, nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them uh, at all. As prescribed by their own um, very narrow interpretation of the book of Leviticus. The law of Moses is found in the book of Leviticus. Now, the Pharisees, to give them credit, they examined things very closely. Now, that, that's not bad. They didn't do everything wrong, and you should too. But they examined Jesus very, very closely when he was on earth throughout his three years of public ministry. They, they listened carefully to the content of his teaching. They invited him some of the leaders would invite him to their homes for dinner, for conversation, and to drill down and to have questions and, and, uh, and debate, discuss with him. But ultimately, they opposed Jesus. They decided not to believe in him, that he was not the Messiah. And finally, they led the charge to assassinate Jesus. Well, they're in the crowd that day. And they were well acquainted with the scriptures. They knew the prophecy of Zechariah. They were looking for the Messiah themselves. And they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming by this ride on this donkey into the city on that day. And they were saying, don't, stop it. You stop. You stop your disciples from all this. They were very, very upset that this was, was happening. Uh, his symbolism was not lost on them. They knew he was claiming to be the Messiah, but they did not believe him. And then a in the midst of this, a strange thing happened. A strange thing happened. In the midst of this great rejoicing, Jesus began to weep. Huh. Look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, this term wept is not a little, excuse me, my eyes are sweating. Let me get my handkerchief and, you know, little sniffles here and there. Uh, this word for wept there in the Greek language is a word for wailing, lamenting, gut-wrenching, uncontrollable sobbing. 
he burst into sobs. While, the, while his disciples were, were rejoicing, Jesus was grieving. What was that about? Why did he do that? Look at this. In, uh, why did he do that? Well, it was, he was crying because it was too late for the city of Jerusalem. It was too late. Verse 42, he said, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. They had, they had their chance as God came near, but they had passed over opportunity after opportunity. Evidently, most of the population of the city of Jerusalem had done so, the vast majority. It, but now it was too late for them. Their opportunities were over. They had said no to Jesus. They had snubbed Jesus. They had rejected Jesus. They showed up at 6, but the bus left at 5. They squandered it. And no matter, no matter where Jesus looked, he had cause for weeping. I mean, it, it, when he looked back over recent and ancient history, he saw how the nation had wasted their opportunities and been ignorant or intentionally indifferent uh, to the time of God coming to them, the time of their, God's visitation with them. When he looked within their hearts and souls, he saw spiritual ignorance and blindness in the hearts of the people. For they should have known who he was, the Scriptures say. They should have known who he was. They should have recognized who he was. Um, because uh, down through history... God had given them his word that proclaimed the, 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 the Psalms, the, the law and the prophets, Jesus said, tell of me. And he'd sent his messengers, the prophets, down through the years to proclaim his message, yet they had ignored Jesus uh, and, and, the, and, and God's word. They should have known. When he looked around, he saw all kind of religious activity, in, but that accomplished very little uh, the temple had become a den of thieves. The, the religious leaders were out. The leaders who should have known were actually out rather than accepting the Messiah were trying to kill the Messiah. The city was filled with all kind of religious pilgrims coming in for the great festival, but they really weren't too interested in God. They were showing up for the party. Kind of sounds like Mardi Gras. You know, just showing up, just showing up for the party. Hey, great time to get together to feast and, you know, maybe get a little sauced in the name of God. Here, uh, it, but it was empty religious expression and experience. Their hearts were far from God, and it broke his heart, and he sobbed. When Jesus looked ahead to the future, he had reason to weep uh, because he wept. He saw the terrible consequences that were coming to the nation, to the city, and to the temple, specifically as a result of their saying to Jesus, "No," and they were severe. Take a look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus said, For in the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And you can read the account, the historical account, in the historical record of the ancient Jewish historian Josephus of, ex of the fulfillment of what Jesus said here. Forty years later in 70 AD, the Romans 
under the leadership of Titus of Rome, would come and after a siege of 143 days, they would break into the city. They slaughtered thousands of the Jews, thousands of others they took away into captivity, and they totally destroyed the city, and especially the temple. Said not one stone left upon another. Why? Why? Well, Jesus said here because they did not recognize the time that God himself came near in the form of Jesus, and they rejected his great salvation. They said no. They came at six, but the bus left at five. It was too late. They missed the bus. They missed their chance. And Jesus wept because he knew they had already squandered their last chance. Jesus wept because he's compassionate on sinful people like you and like me. Jesus wept because their future broke his heart. He wept because Jesus takes no pleasure in people perishing and choosing to go to hell forever uh, apart from him. Rather, the scriptures say that he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus wept because the consequences were severe and they were long-lasting. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus are so severe that I would encourage you to be sure that you receive him while you still have a chance. They're severe and long. So what are the consequences, Pastor? Well, they are separation from the care and provision and supervision of Jesus in this life, separation from a life-giving relationship with Him in this life, and separation from Him in eternity in a place called hell. They are severe in this life because it's, 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 it's a life of existing, not the fullness of life that Christ intends for you to have. And it is permanent in the next life. So what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, I'm, I'm talking about hell. Well, what's that like? Well, let's, let's let Jesus tell us himself. If you'll take a look in, in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus called hell the outer darkness, that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, Jesus called hell the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus called hell the unquenchable fire. You say, oh, pastor, do you, that, that, that's just metaphorical. Well, okay, let's go with that one for a second. Let's assume that this is metaphorical language. Could be, could be. But here's what we find in the scriptures. In all of the prophetic writings and then in all of the, uh, the teachings in the scripture that seemed about uh, the future, we have, we have human beings inspired by God the Holy Spirit using human language and it's somewhat limited. And so let's, let's, let's not talk about hell for a second. Let's talk about heaven. When we go to the great passages about heaven over in the book of Revelation, uh, you find the gates of pearl and, you know, streets of gold and all of this great beautiful language. And uh, most scholars believe that God is using the best we have of limited human language to describe just how wonderful eternity will be with him. But we are limited. And so it's not exactly as the scriptures say. It is bigger and better. 
This is the best we can do to describe it. We're at the limit of human language. It's bigger and better than that. And when it comes to the descriptions of hell, we use the extreme of human language, but it is still limited. And God is saying, yeah, this is the best we can do and that you can understand, but it's much worse than that. We would hope that it would be literal. If it's not literal, it's worse. And Jesus said, I don't want you to go there. The consequences of rejecting Jesus in this life are so severe in this life and eternal. So I would encourage you, receive him while you still have the opportunity. Don't put him off. The Bible says that all people who come to faith in Jesus do so when he calls us. Not just any old time we want to do so. Now you might say, well, pastor, I've got, I, you don't, I, don't get all wound up about this. I've got plenty of time. I will decide to follow Jesus when I'm good and ready. No, you won't. No, you won't. Not according to God's word. It is clear from God's word that God himself unlocks a human being's capacity, a man's capacity, a woman's capacity, a boy's capacity, a girl's capacity to respond to him. And then he gives us opportunities to turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and receive his gift of eternal life, to be forgiven, to be saved, to decide to follow Jesus. And he only knows how many chances we have. He is the one who understands when we say, finally, for the last time, a final no. He knows what that is. And then when he do, we do, those chances stop. They cease. They end. The bus leaves and you're not on it. And then he weeps. Because it's too late for us. He weeps because he takes no pleasure in this. He weeps because you yourself decide to send yourself to hell for all eternity. So I'd receive him before it's too late. In Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6, God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The implication is that there may come a day when he may not be found by you. There may come a day when he will not draw near to you any longer. And so what will you do? Will you squander one more opportunity? Will you miss one more chance? Will, you, will one day Jesus be weeping over you because it's now too late? Because you came at six and the bus left at five? He does not want it to be too late for you. And so, oh no, pastor, what if it's too late for me? I really want to receive Jesus. Then it's not too late. If you still want him, he's still calling you. And I'd encourage you to respond. So, well, pastor, then what should I do? Well, you must do three things. First of all, you must repent of your sin. That means that you must admit to yourself and to God himself that you're a sinful person, been living life apart from God in need of a Savior, that you grieve your sin and you want to turn from it and turn to him. It's like driving down a one-way street the wrong way and all of a sudden realizing all the traffic's coming toward you. You make a, tur a complete turn and go in the opposite direction, in the right direction to safety. 
You repent of your sin. Second, you must believe in Jesus. That means you not only believe that Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh and that he died on the cross in your place because of your sin, for your sin. You not only believe that he took somehow, when he was on the cross, your, your sin on his body and made appropriate payment for it by his blood that was shed and his body that was, was broken, and that you not only believe that he rose from the dead and is alive and powerful enough to save you and do this for you, but that you also then... It's claim to, I need Jesus and I want Jesus and I commit active trust of my, of, uh, my active trust in Jesus alone for this salvation, this forgiveness. It's like I've noticed that most of you today in here, if not everybody, is seated in a chair. Is that correct? How many of you are seated in a, in a chair? Well, some of you are. Okay, good. And, uh, but, you know, you, what you did when you came in, you noticed that chair and you might have looked at it. And I'm looking at one right right here on the front row that's empty. And I'm a little tired here at the end of the second service, and I'm looking forward to sitting down. And I believe that chair is going to hold me up and that I can trust that chair, but I'm not receiving the benefit of it right now for, for one reason. And why is that? I'm not sat in the chair. you got to get in the chair. That is the picture of biblical faith. It is placing your faith, putting, resting your, all your hopes on Jesus. When we believe in him, we not only believe all those things that he did, but we give ourselves to him actively in intention, on purpose. We repent of our sin, we believe in Jesus, and we go public with our faith. We declare our faith in him publicly. That means that you're not ashamed for anyone to know that you're a follower of Jesus. The apostle Paul said it this way on the screen in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, if you're ready to repent of your sin and if you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, then confess him publicly. The way to do that, the way he designed for us to do that uh, formally is by believer's baptism. Someone's going to celebrate their Christian baptism in just a moment in our services. Our, pub, our baptism is our public profession of our faith in Jesus. And uh, I'd encourage you to do that. That's the next step. Some of you are ready. And I want to encourage you to make this commitment. So pray with me. Let's pray. We don't want the bus to leave without you. Now these words I'm going to lead you through, there's nothing magical about these words. God's more concerned with the attitude of your heart than he is the words of your mouth. But if this prayer expresses the attitude of your heart and the willingness and desire of your heart, then you pray this prayer from your heart to the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Pray after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit that I've gone my own way. I have sinned with my thoughts, words, and actions. And I'm sorry for my sins. I turn from them in repentance. I believe that you died for me taking my sins in your body on the cross. And I thank you for your great love for me. Now, I open the door 
I open the door of my life. Come in, Lord Jesus. Come in as my Savior and cleanse and forgive me. Come in as my Lord and take control of my life in eternity. And I commit to serve you as you give me strength all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for hearing these prayers. I want to thank you that it was not too late for those who've called on your name. I want to thank you for giving them a seat on the bus. And now I pray that you'd give them great assurance of their salvation. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Here's what I'd like for you to do. If you prayed to receive Christ, you made this commitment to follow Him for the very first time, uh, I want you to let me know about it by using the Dogwood response card. On the back of the card, top left-hand corner, it says, My decision today, I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. People do that every week here. Every week here. And so I want you to join us. Let us know. Let us know. And then we'll respond with materials and prayers and conversations to help you with your next steps spiritually. Some of you... uh, may already be Christians, but you've been disobedient Christians. You've been disobedient children, but today you realized, you know, I want to come back and I'm recommitting my life to Christ. Well, I'd like to know that too. I did that when I was 17 years old, August the 9th, 1970. Changed everything for me. And uh, let me know, check that statement that says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. I've got some materials. I call it a, I call it a coming back to Christ packet to help you now that you're back how to stay on the path, and uh, I'd like to get that to you. Uh, Some of you have uh, today and maybe in the past committed your life to Christ, but you've been a secret disciple, and you've never gone public with your faith. The next step for you is to go public with your faith uh, by believer's baptism and celebrate that publicly. Check on that card, I'm interested in baptism. Our team will help you schedule Uh, and celebrate your Christian baptism. We'd like to do that as well. Now I want to pray for you one more time. Lord, thank you that in your great love and mercy, one day, one day in May 1961, you looked down on the backside of Harrelson County, Georgia, and you called a little nine-year-old boy. That was me. And you invited me to get on the bus. And uh, you called me to yourself. Thank you for the great salvation. And thank you for those today who've made the same commitment. We thank you that you have written your word on our hearts. One of those words we really appreciate is the word forgiven. We celebrate that now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you would like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword DOGWOOD to 77977 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and to give.